All right, our Bible reading is 2 Corinthians, chapter 6, starting at verse 14, and going through to chapter 7, verse 1. The writing's too small, I'll have to hold it up a bit closer. Okay. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? What does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them and walk among them, and I will be their God and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing, and I will receive you. I will be a father to you, and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. This is the word of the Lord. Do not be yoked with unbelievers. Do you like that? I always felt like this should be written in capital letters in bold and like shouted at me as a teenager. I think that's how I felt. It was terrifying. My youth leaders used to use that analogy of like, you're a Christian, right? You're standing on a chair. Okay. And how much easier is it for you to be pulled off the chair by someone else than it is for you to pull someone up onto the chair with you. So being on the chair is like being a Christian. Yeah? Do you get it? So i.e., don't, if you fancy someone who's not a Christian, don't be thinking that you can convert them because the chances are they will lure you away from the Lord with all sorts of evil ways. This dashed my hopes of marrying Robbie Williams. <clears throat> now, the church I grew up in had come out of the Brethren Church, but still at that time had a lot of Brethren theology, I guess, in its DNA. And I recently read a book, an autobiography, of someone who had grown up in the exclusive Brethren, which took passages like this one in the Bible to the extreme, I guess. They basically um, set themselves apart from the world, um, believing that as Christians they had to keep themselves separate from those that did not believe. Otherwise, you might be contaminated by the world. It even got to the point where members were not allowed to eat with non-brethren people. You weren't allowed to even see a non-brethren doctor. You weren't allowed to read books or newspapers or watch TV, go to the cinema, listen to music. All these things were considered to be worldly. They lived expecting the rapture to happen at any minute, and as the chosen ones, they must be ready and not be contaminated. It's a fascinating read, and the exclusive brethren actually got to the point where they were no longer classed as a church, but as a cult, and through a series of scandals in the 70s, their leadership was found to be corrupt. But it's passages like this one in 2 Corinthians, where I think, I, I read it, and I can see a little bit how they came to believe what they did. Now, I don't actually think that the exclusive brethren's interpretation of this passage is correct, but how should we interpret it today? How do we balance the call to be set apart and holy with the call to transform people's lives through the good news of Jesus? 
And what about the church? What is the church really for? Is it a members-only club for those who believe? Or is it a place of forgiveness and grace for everyone? So let's look at a little bit of the background to this passage and see if we can find some answers. So 2 Corinthians is written by Paul. It's a letter written to the church in Corinth. And Corinth, which is near Athens, um, at that time was a young kind of cosmopolitan city. It was modern and impressive. It was ideally situated for trade. um, And with trade came wealth. Uh, It was renowned for its impressive architecture and the chance for upward mobility. Lots of freed slaves went and settled there because it, it gave them opportunity to better themselves. It was an individualistic society where people flaunted their wealth to get status. Paul had visited Corinth on a number of occasions, but the church there, like the society it was surrounded by, had stayed very immature. And because Paul had sent letters rebuking their behavior, he then faced criticism. Um, And the church there were being sort of lured away from from Paul's teachings by other visiting preachers who were boasting of ecstatic visions and revelations from God. Um, And Paul continues to write to them using quite strong language about how they need to change. And it seems initially that what Paul is warning them against is basic peer pressure. The church in Corinth were being negatively influenced by the non-Christian society around them. Are we being influenced by negatively by the non-Christian society around us? As Christians, we are called to holiness, and, but holiness cannot be achieved by sheer force of will or by following a list of rules like the brethren did. It's an ongoing process which won't be completed until Jesus returns and we live in his new creation. It's a, but, but it is a positive process where we are, we're being set apart for God as well as being set apart from that which opposes God. True holiness offers something different than the world offers. It's not a passing fad or a fashion, but an alternative way of living. But does it have to be an isolated way of life? Whilst all the answers to Paul's series of questions in this passage are clearly meant to be none or nothing, so what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Nothing. What fellowship can light have with darkness? None. What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? None. This one always makes me laugh because I imagine Jesus and the devil having a little sing-song, but they're not getting their harmonies right. (laughs) There's no harmony between Jesus and the devil. The devil can't sing. Um, Anyway, um, what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? Nothing. What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? None. But I think the answer starts to become clearer in the next verse. For we are the temple of the living God. And Paul's talked a bit about this before in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 16. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit lives in you? If this is true, then the Corinthians need to be a fit place for God to dwell. Paul then goes on to quote some Old Testament scripture to back up his idea. He quotes Isaiah telling the children of Israel to leave their place of exile in Babylon and return to the promised land, therefore come out from them and be separate. If they do this, they will then be welcomed by God. It says, I will receive you. 
And then he quotes Samuel and reminds them that God is their father. I will be a father to you and you will be my sons and daughters. If God is their father, then they must share some family characteristics, some DNA, which then enables them to be God's temple and for God's spirit to live in them. So let's think back to the questions we were trying to answer. How do we balance the call to be holy and set apart with the call to transform people's lives through the good news of Jesus? I think it's really helpful to remember, as Paul reminds us in this passage, that we, Christians collectively, are God's temple. We are where the Holy Spirit dwells. So yes, we do need to be holy. We need to be a fit dwelling place for God. But it's not through our own efforts that we become holy. It's only through God's grace and his ongoing transformation of our lives. So we can't ever be self-righteous in our holiness, which means that we're not set apart in a negative way because we know that we're all the same. We're all sinful and in need of God's saving grace. So the church can't possibly be a members-only club because it would have no members without forgiveness and grace for all. So Paul ends this passage by encouraging the Corinthian church to press on in their desire for holiness out of reverence for God. So let's be different from the world around us, showing an alternative way of living, not so that we can isolate ourselves, but so that those around us can see God's saving grace in action in our lives. And let's, as a church, remember that we are God's temple. We are where he dwells, and that it's only through God's grace that we become holy.